Great. Well, it is the top of the hour. I'm going to go ahead and get started uh, while we wait for people to file in. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Scott Schiff with the Atlas Society. We have Lawrence on hosting duties. Uh, we're very pleased to have Atlas Society senior scholars Richard Salzman and Stephen Hicks discussing Javier Malay, uh, his presidency, and the implications for South America. After their opening comments, we'll open it up to questions. So if you have a question, request to speak, and we'll get to as many of you as possible. Uh, I'm not sure which one of you wants to start. We've got uh, Stephen, our uh, roving uh, philosopher, uh, on the ground in Argentina. Okay. Yeah, why, why don't I start? We have an hour and a half, and when I was thinking through this topic, there's a lot of sub-issues that are worth exploring. Uh, so one, one agenda or one structure might be just to put a topic on the table and then you know, we all discuss that for 10 minutes or so and then move on to the next topic. Some of the things are more philosophical, some are more economic, and I know Richard will speak well to those. Some of them have to do with the kind of leadership potential and then as, as uh, Scott was suggesting, broader implications for Latin America and so on. Rather than uh, just just put a whole bunch of things out there, what do you think about going through kind of topic by topic? Sure, that sounds good to me. That sounds good, Stephen. Um, okay. I think we right. I think I think we might also want to appreciate that some of the uh, people in the room may not know the broader story. So if we started broader, like mm -hmm. who is he? How did he get to where he is? And then we could get more detailed. Um, that. Has, that can be brief, but uh, maybe we can start okay. with that. Yeah. All right. Well, let me say a, say a few things. I, uh, I've, I've met Javier Millet three times. Uh, each time it was uh, when we were both speaking at events uh, together. Uh, not uh, We were both speaking at the same event. Uh, uh, I was speaking on philosophical topics. He was speaking on economic topics uh, twice in uh, Argentina, once in, in Brazil. Uh, so the, the, the first time I heard him, he was giving a straight up, this was about four or five years ago now, straight up economics lecture. And the, uh, the, the most impressive thing to me <clears throat> was just, just how well he understood the economics from my perspective. I don't have expertise in that area, but I know enough to be dangerous, so to speak. And uh, all of the, the economic indicators, uh, the way he was talking even then about inflation issues, about money supply issues, about fiat currency, about the value of free markets, uh, uh, the destructiveness of tariffs. And uh, it was all straight up uh, free market economics, uh, but at a very high level sprinkled in with quotations from all of the people you know, I've considered uh, heroes in the free market economics uh, and actually it's just good economics literature. So Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, Milton Friedman, and uh, and so on. So uh, in, in my estimation, he was very, very good. Uh, and then, of course, he is uh, quite a, a thespian. He's, he's got a lot of energy, a lot of passion, and he always adds a significant amount of theater to his presentation. So he made for a a compelling presentation with you know, good visuals, good charts, and, and so on. And the other two times were a mixture, and they were more recent. Uh, he was starting to become more significant 
on the on politics. Uh, and again, uh, he was making very good points about the economics, but then also speaking directly to the issues of uh, just the, the bad economics, the corrupt economics, and then the other forms of political corruption that are uh, endemic in uh, in the Argentinian political political scene. Uh, in both cases, uh, sorry, uh, both of the more recent cases, uh, uh, the talks were, were very well received and I, I found myself enjoying them as well. But I also met him a little bit personally, you know, where we would talk and uh, he is, uh, I got the impression that he was actually shy uh, socially. Uh, once he's on stage, it's like he becomes alive and plugged in. Outside of that, he strikes me as a little, Shy, perhaps a little bit socially awkward uh, in uh, in one on one meetings or small group meetings, uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, well mannered and, uh, and and very interesting to uh, to talk to. The other thing that was also impressive to me was that he is, aside from being good on the straight economics issues, he has a strong normative uh, component to him, and this is the thing that brings in the philosophy as well. So the issues of self-responsibility, uh, you know, the importance of uh, personal production, uh, per the importance of character, uh, you know, not being a victim, not being a parasite, all of those themes, and that it's not just uh, you know charts and 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 data that we need to do as economists and, and as political economists, but we have to. You know, uh, people who are bad, who are corrupt, uh, they are bad people. And there are, in fact, evil people in politics. And uh, and he does have the uh, the courage to to name names and, and so forth. And on the same side, that a healthy culture, a healthy economy requires character. It requires virtue. Uh, and uh, he, he speaks to those elements of uh, especially Argentinian culture that uh, that uh, held hold the Argentinians back. So uh, that was my my first remark. Uh, just that uh, it strikes me as very proficient on the economics and uh, as a as a as a compelling speaker. Obviously, has some strong theatrical elements. I don't know how much of it is uh, Javier Malay comes out in his true personality when he is public speaking, and how much of it is calculated political theater. But uh, uh, he does know how to hold a room and hold one's attention and and get his messages across. Yeah, I would add to that, Stephen. The uh, in looking at his biography, um, well, here's here's one example of the theater that kind of illustrates the biography. Is he he was known for holding aloft a chainsaw at his uh, rallies, depicting the idea that he's going to slash and cut the budget. And people just loved it, you know. Uh, I don't. I don't think he actually revved up the thing. Too dangerous. But many pictures of Javier Malay uh, holding up a, a chainsaw and a slashed government, and promising, you know, out of the twenty-one agencies to get rid of half of them. But his first executive order a couple of days ago was exactly that. How much they're actually disbanded? I'm not sure. But we can talk about how and whether he can govern uh, to the agenda he has set. Yeah, there were 21, 21 uh, cabinet yeah. positions and agencies, and yeah. that was reduced to nine. Right. Although some of them get folded in. Right. So, uh, but his, back, uh, yeah, his, but his background is interesting because I have found, you know, if you compare him to, as he is being compared to other so-called right-wing leaders who have emerged in recent 
a decade or so, Bolsonaro in Brazil or Trump in America, uh, Oban in Hungary and elsewhere. He's a very uh, learned guy. He's uh, uh, not only read a lot of books and read the right people, but he's published books. He was a professor. Uh, and so he got a PhD and he was a professor. <laughs> then he became a pundit. A kind of very active this is the more theatrical part you know the pundit on political and economic shows and uh, just plenty of meat of course to attack the existing administrations by the way both re- right and left for uh mismanagement for the hyperinflation for the corruption and it's so as you know Stephen, the whole history down there is you, you have to do have a half a populist aspect to what you're arguing, and sometimes that can be anti-capitalist. I, so I have known that his, I've, I've noticed that his stance is more anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-corruption. Notice all the antis, you know, rather than an explicit defense of capitalism. Capitalism still has a bad name down there, but he will use the word liberalism. And down there, as in Europe, liberalism means more liberty. And um, I understand that much of his uh, support, he won the election 55 to 44 on November 19th. So that's considered a landslide that a lot of his support was from young men. So, you know, he is uh, iconoclastic in the sense of the way you describe, but not only in his views, but in his style. Um, Mm -hmm. And but yes, one on ones, if someone if you want to look at anyone want to look at the interview before he got elected with um tucker carlson who went down to buenos aires that's just a one-on-one in a studio and he's very sedate but also very measured and very interesting uh in in that interview and it's philosophical and political i just want to give you a a a flavor of it highly recommended it's about a 30-minute interview but but here's an example of the way he talks he says to tucker argentine's embrace of socialist ideas began with an idea that seems attractive, but it's actually terrifying, a terrifying way to operate an economic system. The idea that where there is a need, there's a right. It's a real problem because there can be infinite needs, but someone also always has to pay for those rights. Um, now he goes on. Now that's the kind of thing where socialism is a, a political analysis. He knows the economy is being wrecked, but notice his sensitivity to the underlying kind of moral premises that underlie it. That's a very integrated, synthesized thinker, I think, I believe. uh, What do you think, Stephen? Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, I think so very much. And the correlate point I want to make is, uh, uh, you're talking about his personal background as as published author, as professor, PhD, and so forth. Uh, There is, uh, behind the scenes here in Argentina, the work of a generation to uh, lay some of the groundwork for for uh, for someone like uh, Javier Malay to to uh, to rise. Uh, in North America, we are familiar with the concept of the long march through the institutions and what the left very successfully did, starting in the 1960s, to start uh, laying the groundwork for institutional capture over the course of the next the next generations. There has been some of that in Argentina, but uh, fighting a much harder battle because the cultural framework is uh, significantly different in Latin America compared to to uh, to North America. But uh, the uh, the intellectual lineage is almost striking. Ludwig von Mises was invited 
to come down to Argentina and give some lectures. Hayek was uh, invited down. Yeah. Uh, Milton Friedman, more famously, was invited to Chile to come and give some some lectures, basically saying to Pinochet, "Don't be an economic dictator." Uh, and the uh, the Chicago School, as well as the Austrian School, have had uh, significant influence on a tiny and very active group of uh, thinkers and doers in Argentina and other places in uh, in Latin America, especially in Argentina. And uh, and southern Brazil. I should also mention in uh, in Chile, uh, but on a, on a smaller scale as well. And one of the things that uh, uh, that can be traced is after Mises made his visit to Buenos Aires and gave his talks, they uh, the Argentines got together and raised money to send three young Argentinians. At this point, these were all like eighteen to twenty year old kids up to the United States. Then they said, what we need to do is send them to the United States to places like Hillsdale or Grove City College, uh, places that are that actually have some uh, Austrian school thinkers and so forth. And they did go up to the United States. They got their college education in the United States, became kind of true believer Austrian econ economists uh, and uh, um, a neoclassical uh, in the Milton Friedman Chicago School style, and came back to Argentina and started think tanks, started activist organizations focused on entrepreneurship, on liberty, on progress, uh, uh, on Ayn Rand in particular, uh, and then working with publishers down here to get Rand's books translated into Spanish, get Friedman's books, Hayek's books, Mises's books, all published into Spanish. Now, all of this is happening in the 1980s, and it starts to bear fruit through the 1990s, through the 19, or so on into the 2000s, until uh, just in this past generation, there have been four uh, pretty sizable and a number of other smaller organizations that are devoted to various aspects of liberty. So Javier Malay then, is mixed in because he's a younger guy now, uh, but he's coming up and mixing with all of these people. And uh, uh, so they might then say it's a, a libertarian march through the institutions that's uh, having a spectacular success now. Yeah, I want to mention also the Center for the Study of Liberty in uh, Buenos Aires was set up as far back as 1957 and was the source of some of these ideas at least being held alive during the some very bad periods those who know argentine history they they almost pretty much copied the u.s constitution in 1863 way back in 1863 and for about 50 years until uh roughly world war one uh, but a little bit beyond that the 50 or 60 year period they call the golden years enormous prosperity, enormous wealth. They were almost totally laissez-faire. Didn't even have a central bank till 1935, 20 years after the Fed. And uh, if you just look, go online now and look for pictures of photos of Buenos Aires in 1929, it is it is uh, shocking how beautiful and opulent yeah. and clean yeah, it's a, it is. It's a spectacularly uh, beautiful city, yeah. city in its historical core. Uh, even so, in mid now, once you get outside of that, unfortunately, it starts to become just another standard Latin yeah. American city uh, pretty quickly. But uh, yeah, to speak to uh, Richard's historical point, 
uh, yeah, the influence of the British classical liberals, uh, specifically the British classical liberals in the early part of the 1800s was, uh, was huge. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't just that the British, uh, in addition to the Italians and the Spanish and so on, but especially the British will be bringing over commercial know-how, technical know-how, industrial revolution in its products and so on. But it was, yes, largely a laissez-faire uh, regime in the latter part of the 1800s. Uh, some, some striking uh, factors, uh, if you look at the year 1910, uh, one of the parallels that is uh, is often pointed out uh, down here is uh, the compare Buenos Aires with Chicago in 1910. Right. And by almost every demographic measure, they are identical. Population is about identical, uh, both approaching uh, less than a million people, but growing rapidly. Similar mix of uh, ethnic Groups, you know, Italians and Germans, and uh, and, and people from a, a variety of places, both agricultural centers. So Chicago, uh, being where all of the crops from the the Midwest flow into to go onto the Lake Coast, eventually to make them their way to the Eastern markets and then overseas. The same thing, Buenos Aires, uh, uh, taking everything that comes in from the Pampas. Uh, uh, and then uh, many of the mineral resources as well, and then it, it has this beautiful natural harbor. So the point is that they were almost equal in wealth and every single demographic measure, uh, including broad cultural philosophy and so on. But then over the course of the next 90 years, what happened is, of course, Chicago continued to, uh, to go up and became a spectacular first world city, and Argentina went into very slow decline, uh, and, and, and the slopes of Chicago going up and the slopes of Argentina going down are almost mirror images uh, of each other. In 1910, this is before World War I, Argentina was in the top 10 richest yeah. nations in the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, amazing human resources, natural resources, everything going for it. And then disaster struck after World War I, but we can come back to that point. Yeah, and even to this day, as you know, uh, Stephen, the, the, if you say I'm a, if you say down there I'm a Peronist, uh, Juan Peron was the um, basically the autocrat, um, fascist leaning leader, uh, first uh, 1946 to 1955 or so, <laughs> but then came back in the 70s. Uh, people may not realize this, but this terrible period for Argentina, losing its liberalism between the 30s up until not until 1983 that's only 40 years ago that argentina got back some semblance of democracy so they're still a mess to some degree but at least they got out of the military dictatorship kind of autocracy um, of those years uh, people will remember the famous musical evita evita peron was the, the second wife of juan peron so the fact that people leaders in Argentina to this day still, you know, unabashedly call themselves Peronists or that there's referrals to Peronism is really quite interesting. So they're not necessarily ashamed of that past. No, nobody in Italy is running around calling themselves Mussoliniists or yeah. Germany. So that, that is kind of interesting. And that that is also, we should know, what, what Millet is kind of fighting against. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, yeah, that, that's that's well said. I want to actually upgrade your phrase fascist leaning because in the 20s and 30s, when uh, Perón 
came to power, yeah. uh, he was just straight up fascist, <laughs> admired. No, you know, no, ad, no leaning. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Ad, admired Mussolini. Yeah. And uh, uh, when they rewrote the code, uh, they borrowed, and in some cases just directly copied, the fascist constitution uh, that Mussolini had put in place in Italy. Yeah. So it was a, uh, you know, it tended to be a fascist copy country. And even to this day, significant parts of that, uh, uh, of that code are still on the books. So if you look at the labor code, for example, it's almost copied word for word from what, uh, uh, was, what was in place in, in Italy in the, in, the, uh, in the 1920s. Now, partly it was, uh, the, the ideological story is important there, but also there is a certain amount of political capture by that, uh, by that political party that's made it very hard to, uh, for other political parties to get much traction. They've been able to oh. institute uh, barriers to entry, so to speak, uh, politically. So there are other parties kicking around, but they, uh, they, uh, they, they, they can't get onto the stage very easily. The, the Peronists have a political monopoly, uh, even if they've drifted from their pure fascist roots. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I refer to fascist leaning, if you look at what Millet is doing today, or is it Millet? Is it, how does it pronounce, Stephen? Is it Millet? Millet. One of the, notice one of the things he's uh, proposing, one of the things he's trying to do, one of the things he campaigned on was privatization. And to the extent things are nationalized, and they have been nationalized down there, uh, and he wants to privatize them, that leans in the more socialist direction, less fascist direction. So I, I don't know, I, I interpret, the, as I look at their system over the post-World War II period, it seems a mix of the two, that they are willing to nationalize things, which the, the socialists would like, but they're, they're also, you know, they have these militaristic aspects to them that are, and, and controlling business and what, what academia calls corporatism, uh, the yeah. source of corruption that he's trying to fight. So, and it's also interesting that when he, in interviews and writings, describes the disease down there, the political disease down there, he almost never does say fascism. He always does say socialism. And yet I, he must know that it's really a mix of the two, but I, I don't want to get into semantics here, but the privatization plank of his uh, uh, program is is really going against the socialist arguments, less so than Right, and I don't know if in Malay's uh, conceptualization, if he has fascism as a subset of, of socialism. Yeah. Or, uh, or if he wants to put them on a, uh, or, or categorize them, categorize them differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, there is a kind of just delicious irony about uh, how outside of Argentina, all of the people who are upset with Malays being uh, elected to power, yeah. uh, all the people who have been saying loudly for years that they are anti-fascist, are very upset that a fascist-inspired regime got kicked out of power. <laughs> yeah, there's a right. kind of delicious irony at work there. Yeah, if, that's very good. Well, we're going to stay with if we're going to stay with philosophy a little more before we go into politics and economics. I'm curious, Stephen, what you think. The it, I, I think last time I checked, maybe 70, 75 percent of Argentines are Catholic. It's very interesting that Malay has been critical of the Pope. Now, the Pope is from Argentina, so Francis. So that's, very, I think, 2013 he ascended to that 
position. And Millet has been unvarnished in his criticism of the Pope. He calls him a leftist. He calls him a apologist for the Castros, an apologist for Madero in Venezuela. And so the whole, uh, I don't know, I guess they used to call it liberation theology, Stephen, down there, the, the unity of yeah. unity of Marx yeah. and Jesus. I find it very interesting that he campaigned and is known for being critical of the Pope. And yet at this, but because the Pope leans left or say is um, sympathetic with environmentalism, Malay is a very strong critic of environmentalism, thinks it's a, thinks it's anti-capitalist uh, Marxism hiding, you know, once the Soviets failed, he says they moved into to the green critique. So that I think it's a very subtle recognition that environmentalism is uh, Marxism wrapped up in a, but the critique of the Pope is very interesting. And yet he is, he wants to reverse the 2020 decriminalization of abortion down there. So Argentina only recently uh, said abortion's okay. And he's actually against abortion rights. Have you noticed? Yeah, I'll come back to that that specific issue in a in a okay. bit. Okay. Uh, yeah, go back to your point about the philosophy, the Catholicism versus the socialism, uh, yeah. and, and so forth. There's a very common pattern in Latin America when I've traveled around. It, it intellectually, the intellectual culture is narrower than the intellectual culture in North America, the one that we're more familiar with. Yeah. And when you think about how difficult it is for us in North America to get people who are left liberals and right conservatives to realize that not everything is a two-way argument, that there are third possible political alternatives. Uh -huh. Um, that's a, an uphill battle for us in North America. It's much, much more difficult, almost impossible in much of Latin America. Huh. Uh, and I think that in part explains its, its oscillation politically between usually very left-leaning, often these are just warmed over 60s radicals on the left who uh, uh, were like former just straight-up Marxists, a very strong socialist and of a, of a close fellow traveler version who now may have uh, adopted some postmodern elements. Right. And that's a huge uh, intellectual cultural block all over Latin America, but especially in Argentina and Brazil, which are the most intellectual of the, of the Latin American nations. Right. And the only strong opposition that people see to that approach is uh, you mentioned the Catholicism, but the Catholicism yeah. typically uh, means a kind of conservatism. It's not necessarily just a political conservatism, but a cultural conservatism. And that will include uh, uh, more respect for religion, a position on abortion issues, the, uh, whether girls should, uh, should go to school uh, or whether they should uh, strive to be more homemakers, but also the conservative element uh, typically sees the left side as more anarchic, more revolutionary, more tending to violence. And so their answer to that is to say that we need to have order. And the place we get order is by forming a strong political alliance with the military. So typically the religious slash conservative uh, uh, cultural, intellectual, political block is also uh, working very closely with the military. And so the oscillation will then be that the, the leftists will rise up 
and, and do their violence and, and subterfuge, and, and sometimes they will get into power, and then there will be a swing to the other side, but the only other side that people see is the military, and so there will be a military push and a kind of military dictatorship that tries to take the nation back in a more religious conservative direction. And almost nowhere in the last 80 years do you find what we would think of as classical liberals, much less uh, libertarians. I, uh, when I started coming down here to, uh, to lecture frequently, I would do the usual nerd thing of going to the bookstores. Yeah. And I always go to the uh, philosophy section since that's my my uh, my home yeah. section. Yeah. And the thing that would strike me is uh, that you would find in the philosophy sections in the bookstores all of the standard left wing authors: Karl Marx, Rousseau, all of the schools of neo Marxism. Frankfurt School is represented. All of the postmoderns are there. Uh, uh, 100% of all of the major authors and all of the books are there. And then you will find a significant number of Catholic conservative intellectuals yeah. uh, from the 20th century. So they are all there, but you will not find a single book by John Locke, uh -huh. Adam Smith, yeah. John Stuart Mill, uh, uh, and, and certainly not in the philosophy section, anyone like uh, Ayn Rand. So the classical liberal tradition and more broadly, the British Enlightenment tradition is just not in the intellectual culture is not even taught in the universities. These are just kind of, if you're an educated person, of course, you've heard of John Locke, but you've never actually read him. Yeah. So the, uh, the culture is in that sense impoverished. So a lot of extraordinarily smart people among the intellectual culture, but only partially educated. And that plays out very strongly in the politics. Very interesting. I, I, I read a uh, background piece on the influences in Argentina on on this and to the extent Catholic, to the extent more influenced by French than British, because the British mm -hmm. are Protestant and the French are Catholic. But the argument, Stephen, was that therefore Argentina got more Rousseau and less Locke. And we know what Rousseau leads to. Uh, Rousseau was much more inclined to lead to collectivism and socialism and other things where Locke would not. Um, it, it also interests me, I have seen, this uh, interests me, Stephen, because it's a, also a Catholic connection that um, years ago when I wrote for Forbes, I wrote a piece on uh, Holy Scripture, it was called Holy Scripture and the Welfare State, just the relationship between the ideas. And I found that the concept of social justice, uh, social justice itself as a concept versus, you know, Plano or Aristotelian justice, um, which Malay criticizes very uh, uh, distinctly and in depth, was originated by a Jesuit in the 1840s, Luigi Taparelli. So there's a Catholic, mm -hmm. Italian Catholic origin, based on Thomas Aquinas, by the way, uh, who's otherwise a perfectly decent Aristotelian. But a, a, a fellow named Luigi Taparelli, if you look it up, the Jesuit, 1840s, came up with the concept of social justice, and his argument was that plain old <clears throat> justice doesn't entail enough mercy. But if you listen to Malay's critique of social justice, as, as I think he gets it indirectly from Hayek, by the way, Hayek did try to critique the social justice, he called it social justice, the mirage, a fake thing. Um, he says it's the opposite of justice. So that that is also interesting because Malay being Catholic, being in a Catholic country, maybe has to be delicate about these things, but the very thing he's kind of fighting 
he may realize uh, that it has some Catholic origins to it. It's not the Marxists who came up with social justice, it's the Catholics. Yep, yep, absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> so maybe we could start uh, transitioning to either economics or, or politics. And one of the other topics I have to talk through and get, get, to get some remarks on is what what uh, Malay's priorities are likely to be? Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the abortion issue, and then of course you know there, there's always forty or fifty issues uh, on the table at a given time. Uh, my my strong sense is that uh, the economy is going to be number one. It's not only that he speaks to his strengths there, yeah. but that uh, is almost uh, universally inside Argentina the issue that everyone says. People need to uh, to attend to. So, yeah. uh, uh, the, most of his energy will be directed toward those economic reforms. Is that your sense, Richard? I, I totally agree with that, Stephen. Yes, so he and he campaigned on that. And the the other way you notice this is as it gets closer to election time, which is November nineteenth, he would de-emphasize the other uh, more extraneous, what we consider the more extraneous social issues. For example, he has a very kind of libertarian take on. Uh, people should be able to buy and sell uh, human organs. Doesn't want doesn't want people standing in line, you know, um, uh, in the sense of uh, organ transplant. Now it's a very radical view. It's been in libertarian circles for a long time, but but Argentinians kind of cringe at that. And the yeah. and the, the abortion issue. I think he wants to deregulate drug use as well. Those things he he said early on, but it diminished his discussion of them as the election neared. And uh, so if the three categories are economic, social, and then third would be foreign policy, which there is an element of that, definitely economic. And, and I think he knows, and I think he was elected on the grounds of knowing that unless he gets rid of the hyperinflation, uh, nothing else is possible. So he does have very, they have a, an inflation there now of 140, 150% a year. Mm -hmm. It's huge. They've had hyperinflations in the past. They have had uh, they have had cases in the 1990s where they put an end to it by severely restricting what the central bank can do. But uh, he is proposing that he is proposing actually an end to the central bank. I'm not sure he's going to get that. But he's also proposing something. We don't have to get into the technics of it, Stephen. I just wanted to put it on the record. He is advocating something called dollarization. And it's yep. very because because dollarization literally means stop issuing pesos locally stop issuing the argentine currency which is losing value you know by the minute and adopt the dollar now now that sounds odd to people that i mean the u.s dollar that sounds odd to people until you realize that and you may know this Stephen. you may see it tangibly dollars do exchange on the streets of buenos Aires and elsewhere because oh yeah that's that's the uh, the common practice uh, nobody yeah. Uh, uh, uses their foreign credit card when they're in the country <laughs> there, unless they're they're stupid. Right. So I know, and everybody gets the advice. Now, when I started coming to Argentina, yeah. my first uh, speaking trip down here was in 2010. The official U.S. dollar to peso exchange rate was 16 pesos to the dollar. Done. But uh, pretty much any busy street you would walk down, there would be guys yeah. saying cambio, cambio, cambio. So then the the uh, the unofficial rate then was 35 pesos to right. the dollar. Right. So, to the extent that uh, you know the official rate is understating the or overstating the value of the peso by more than 
uh, 50% was a problem. But then uh, uh, it just, every trip uh, that came down after that, it had doubled more than us. And currently on the uh, the black market, uh, you can get uh, around 950 yeah. pesos yeah. per uh, per uh, per dollar, right. and that's over what 10 or 12 years or so. Right. So, yeah, the inflation is terrible. Nobody here uses uh, or tries to get paid in pesos if they can can uh, uh, get away with not getting paid in pesos. And if you have dollars, you can live like a king. Uh, and uh, so the dollarization is almost a step toward what is uh, de facto currency yes uh i'm just uh, making it de jour that's a really good distinction and uh, for those of you who don't know there have been three or four cases down there not not just down there but in the rest of the world in south america ecuador well the earliest one panama has had a dollar has used the dollar for many many years decades Ecuador, uh, El Salvador. So he's not pulling this out of his hat. Um, this as again, a version of this, as I said, was tried in the 1990s and it totally eradicated infl hyperinflation overnight. And Argentina really did prosper in the 90s. Unfortunately, we can talk later why they abandoned that. That was abandoned at the end of the century to great harm. But, but Millet at least can look to if anyone has memories of that and say to people, we did do this in the 1990s. It's not impossible for us to fix the currency. So I think that helped him in the election for him to say, listen, this hyperinflation is awful. It's wrecking your standard of living. It's making business calculations and investment uh, impossible. I'm going to dollarize. It's a very radical view. Down there, it's, it's a controversial view. Because the minute you say dollar, they think of America. Like, why would be tied to America in any kind of anti-Americanism, any kind of, you know, the gringos, that kind of thing, that kind of bias and prejudice they feel. He has to fight that. He has to overcome that. But people really down there do love the dollar relative to the peso. It's, it's unbelievable for Americans to believe this because they themselves are suffering under a, you know, say a 5 or 6 or 8 or 9% <laughs> inflation. But relative, relative yeah. Well, I'll give you I'll give you one example. This is from just actually lunch today when we when we arrived in uh, in Buenos Aires. Our server is a guy somewhere in his sixties, and he, he told us uh, that he had been working uh, his entire life, right. and uh, uh, you know, a certain amount of his paycheck goes into the government scheme, pension scheme, which is being inflated away. Right. And uh, uh, after 40 years of work, because of the ravages of inflation, his monthly pension is worth about 100 U.S. dollars um, per month. Wow. Yeah. So that's just, you know, thievery by uh, yeah. two generations of, of politicians. So you know, I don't know how intelligent or well-educated this guy is, but he knows exactly what the politicians have done to him. Yeah. And, and so so that's number one on his agenda. My, is, my interpretation of this has been, one, it's been done before. It's not completely the idea. It's never been tried before. If he does it, that would be spectacular. I think it would take upwards of six months to a year. I think the longer it takes doing any of this, the worse it is because they are just, the fangs are out. The opposition, including a foreign opposition, IMF, they owe IMF a lot of money. And the IMF doesn't want any part of Malay's project. So that's a, that's a thing we're dealing with as well. But I think if he stabilizes the currency, uh, really by substituting the dollar for the currency, 
that would be an enormous thing. And uh, then he could do these other things. Now, now, number two on his agenda is get rid of these government agencies, which he's begun to do. The question is whether that will reduce government spending. He says, now this is a huge number. I checked and found that Argentine federal spending, government spending, is something like 35% of GDP. That's about twice what it is in the U.S. It's huge. And he says he wants to cut it by 15 percentage points. That means he would bring it down from 35% of GDP down to 20. That is huge. I think it would be an enormously positive thing for the economy. But, but I have to say, every economist, almost every economist in the world would say that that would, that would be terrible because the Keynesian view is that the more government spends, the more it stimulates the economy. Well, here's Malay saying, I want to reduce government spending from 35% of GDP to, 50, to, to you know, 21% of GDP. And uh, that's going to be hard for him to do. By the way, you know, politi- well, I won't go to the politics. I'll just stick with the economics for now. The other one is privatization. There are in energy, in utilities, in rail and other things, there, there are government-owned things that he's saying we should privatize this. And the national airline and the airline as well. Right. There's some other things. But, you know, here the argument, standard argument just from Thatcher and Britain that worked in the 80s. Listen, these things are a burden on government. They're badly run. They're sucking uh, the budget dry. And if we convert them to private ownership, not only will they be more efficient and make money, they would actually turn around and start, uh, you know, paying taxes to the government. So it would solve the budget deficit problem which itself is the origin of the money problem. See, the sequencing is they spend too much money. They don't raise enough taxes. They have to borrow. They turn to the central bank. They ask the central bank to print money. I mean, this is the origin of the inflation problem. So if you if you back up just a few steps, you realize that part of his plan to fix the currency has to involve a return to some kind of fiscal integrity, which means trying to reduce the budget, <clears throat> budget deficit. And thankfully, as a free market economist, I'm not coming in and saying, I'm going to you know, narrow the budget deficit by raising taxes on the rich. He's not doing that. He's saying, no, I'm going to drastically cut government spending. And he won the election with that, which is really quite amazing. Now, uh, have you seen his proposals with respect to tariffs? As right now, one of the big problems in uh, in Argentina yeah. is import export. Yeah, uh, exports easier. Import is uh, is very expensive. Things like uh, personal electronics, iPhones or Samsungs or TVs, uh, typically are two to three times as much once you pay the import taxes down here. Yeah, yeah. It's long been known as a, it's an exporter of commodities, like yep. and soybeans, and they're they're dominant in soybeans. And an importer of you know capital equipment and technology. Yeah. I uh, I learned that he is much more of a free trader than is Trump, which is interesting. So from the standpoint of lining him up, you know, with the other right-leaning leaders, he's very for free trade. And now the, the so the difficulty he'll have though is if he's going to dollarize Argentina, there's going to have to be a flow of dollars into Argentina. He can't just start printing dollars on his own. Um, he has to find a way. Has to, he has to set up a situation where dollars want to go to Argentina because it trusts Argentina more, whereas there's been capital flight under the socialists and fascists. So 
that is that that's a that's a that's a tricky thing for him because he wants free trade, but he wants to make sure exports still exceed imports. So that's more of a technical issue. We can leave that aside for now. But mm-hmm. definitely to be classified as more of a free trader. Um, I don't think he has, Stephen, the kind of issues that Orban and others in Europe have regarding uh, refugees. You know, ref- refugees are not flu- fleeing into, I don't think this is true, fleeing <laughs> fleeing into Buenos Aires in the sense where, where he'd be like xenophobic or anything like that. That just hasn't come up. So that's not. Yeah, true. it's uh, down here. That issue exists, but it's much smaller. Uh, you know, as, as bad as things are in Argentina and Brazil, they still and Chile, they yeah. still are the the great success cases compared to uh, Bolivia. Yeah, uh, compared to Venezuela, obviously. Yeah, and there has been uh, uh, when things are terrible in some of the other countries, an influx of people. And there have been some social frictions, but it's been uh, it's been relatively minor. Yeah, I think you mentioned others around it. I mean, it, it, it'll become very interesting because Venezuela, we know, is heavily, heavily socialist and really in decadence. Uh, and Brazil has waffled in between right leaning Bolsonaro and back to Lulu and. Malay himself has been a big critic of Lulu. It's so you get like three huge countries down there with enormous uh, natural resources: Argentina, Venezuela, and Brazil. And they're all trying very different on the political spectrum, Stephen. Very different political models. And so, yeah. I mean, I don't know how long Malay will last. We can talk about that later. But the fact that different experiments are going on just interests me as a scholar. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned Lula in Brazil, who's now back in power after yeah. uh, going to prison for corruption. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, that's right. And there's been a you know a history of that in Latin America. You know, yeah. all kinds of corruption. Yeah. People go to prison, but then they just get uh, cycled back into the system uh-huh. and into power fairly shortly after. Hmm. Uh, I know one of the issues on their minds, but I don't know uh, how much of a priority is this issue of corruption. Hmm. One of the huge differences between North America, Europe, and Latin America is the degree of toleration of corruption. Yeah. So we have corruption in North America, corruption in Europe and Canada, where I'm from, right, and so forth. But in a, in a way, we have baby corruption. <laughs> and and uh, and when corruption occurs, we are scandalized by it. Now, you know, we, we all will say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's politics and politics is corrupt and stuff. But we still are moralists about corruption. One of the things that is striking about Latin America is how normalized corruption is. <laughs> Uh, and there's there's almost uh, as long as I've been coming down here, and at least this might be my limited travel circles, a sense that that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so some scandal emerges, and there's not an outrage mm-hmm. uh, about it, and that you know this is intolerable. It's right. Well, what do you expect? And there's also in in, in large subcultures a kind of sneaking admiration for the person who can pull off a con, including a political <laughs> con. And get away with it. Um, so there is that part of the uh, political culture 
And uh, um, one of my big questions in the case of Malay is, since he does speak the moral language uh, quite frequently about personal responsibility and attacks corruption, how high a priority that will be in his administration? I mean, obviously making sure that his own administration is squeaky clean or at least squeaky by Argentinian standards, but also going those further steps of re-educating people to say, no, look, corruption is abnormal. It's wrong. We should not be tolerating and you should not be tolerating it. However long he's in office for, by the time he leaves, that, uh, uh, that cultural attitude has shifted for the positive. That's really interesting, Stephen, the way that distinction you make between it. Well, what did you call it? Baby, baby level, infantile uh, corruption. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Uh, studies. You know, are- I, could, I can remember just being in Canada like two years ago and you know, the, the, everybody in Canada was talking about some senators who padded their expense accounts. You know, and right, right. Wow. Uh, yeah, you don't realize how good you have it until you realize <laughs> the kind of scandals that, uh, that occupy occupy people. But a, a related point on this is that another a good sign with respect to Malay is that uh, another uh, pathological part of Latin American politics, including Argentinian politics, has been the cycle of revenge. Uh-huh. So your party is out of power, yeah. and because you're out of power, you get persecuted in various ways. Yeah. Yeah. And what you do when you get in power is you get your yeah, you get your revenge in various ways. And what I've seen so far is Malay is making a point of saying that he's not going to go after the previous generations of politicians, the ones who are still kicking yeah. around, yeah. and make a point of putting them on trial and so forth. He's yeah. going to say, well, what we need to do is focus on building the future, not vendetta and, uh, and trying to uh, keep the nasty past history in everybody's consciousness. And I think that's a very healthy sign if he can stick to that. I've noticed the same thing, Stephen, and I endorse your interpretation of it entirely. It must take a certain amount of discipline for him to do that. I'll tell you something else I do notice in his approach uh, to corruption, because he he might be aware that studies have been done, uh, you know, instead of just saying, well, someone's on the take and, you know, it's a cultural thing and, you know, we're this way and that way we grease the skids and they don't. Studies have been done, then this wouldn't surprise this audience, but that exactly the extent to which government intervenes in the economy. And in other words, and this can be measured, you know, with the metrics of a mixed economy or not, the more corruption you get. And there are, are metrics on corruption. There's corruption indices put out by the Transparency International, I think. And so I looked at Argentina and, and then there's a direct correlation between and the causal arrow, of course, is. The more government intervenes, the more it deflects and diverts wealth from one pocket to another. It's going to invite, you know, bribery. It's going to invite corruption. And I think I've noticed that Malay, although he doesn't emphasize this a lot, I think that's his view of it. I don't think his view of it is that, you know, as Argentines, I guess we're just corrupt. Let's try to be better people. Let's try to be better Catholics. I think he realizes that if he's able to restrain government intervention in the economy, that that corruption thereby will diminish to some degree. So mm-hmm. that's just different. I just wanted to bring that to bear as a kind of different uh, angle to this that might be explaining yeah. why he's not going the revenge route. 
uh, and, yeah. you know, not, not to mention he's not really surrounded by a bunch of libertarians. I mean, he comes into this as a neophyte in the sense of having, you know, not had any government experience at all. So anyone he hires as cabinet ministers or helpers, anyone he deals with in the legislature are going to be from the other parties that have demonstrated corruption already. So it's a delicate thing. Yeah, I think that's that's nicely said. I think I can uh, open up a road for us to get back to the or abortion issue in particular. So you mentioned that he is a, a neophyte. Uh, and so one of the great challenges that he is going to face is suddenly he is the president, but he doesn't have the years in the trenches yeah. of knowing how the day-to-day -day administration of government goes practically. Yeah. So either he's going to have to get up to learning curve very quickly, or he's going to have to rely on people who have been in power. The people who have been in power, of course, are largely from uh, the other the other parties. Yeah. Um, and that uh, has meant that already he has um, uh, been forced into, I don't know, that might be too strong a word, to form a coalition. Right. Uh, in order to maintain his power, even though he did get a huge, a huge mandate. Nonetheless, um, you know, his party is just not big enough to uh, to be able to fill all the offices with any level of, of uh, professionalism and, uh, and competence. So uh, this was apparent, though, even during the election campaign, yeah. uh, where he's trying to build his coalition up in order to attract enough voting blocks. So uh, and that partly then meant was uh, that you know, he would form coalitions or, or agreements of varying degrees of strength with people who are not libertarian, the closest place we're going to get people who are not Peronist or, or left socialist fascist types, right. is people who are uh, conservative leaning, sometimes more strongly conservative leaning. Now on the abortion issue uh, uh, in particular, and if we put that in a, a whole broader category of social issues, what do you think about things like gambling? What do you think yeah. about uh, you know, gay sex and gay marriage? Yeah. What do you drug, think about yeah. drug, drug legalization? Yeah, drug, prostitution. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, all of that. Yeah. And Malay has consistently libertarian views in organ sales, you mentioned earlier, on pretty right. much all of those things. Yeah. So in one sense, uh, um, abortion is uh, a bit of an outlier on that. So it is a question in my mind, because I've never talked with him about this issue in particular, whether the fact that he put that out publicly during the lead up to the election was politics mm. or personal conviction. Uh huh. So that's an open question to me. Yeah, the, the interview, there is a five minute segment in the interview with Tucker in October where this comes up and you can see what uh, Tucker would be interested in this. Um, and he does seem to have a philosophical, his philosophic argument goes something like, um, it's a life, he actually refers to child in the womb, which is a contradiction, but he actually thinks it's murder. So mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that this is posing you know, so he has the Pope critique, but then he feels like he has to offset <laughs> the anti-abortion. I don't, I think he fundamentally philosophically believes it's uh, murder. So um, we could set that aside. Yeah. Now, I, I don't think he really realized no, that. No, that, that. That may very well be right. Okay. And then the follow-up question would then be uh, yeah. how high in the list of priorities yeah. right. would this be? 
Yeah. You know, after economy, right. after reducing the bureaucracy, yeah. perhaps some foreign policy issues. I've got right. a couple of others to, to consider, yeah. particularly since he knows the country did go through a big battle over the abortion issue just a few years ago. Right. Oh. And he knows that the country is largely divided. And yeah. So he might be also be thinking as a politician, well, I don't want to alienate a huge portion of the, yeah. uh, right. the, the vote that I just spent a lot of time getting. I think it's low on the list. And I think the organ uh, sales thing as well. They they took polls on that in Argentina. I think 10% of the people agreed with it. By the way, Stephen, just to put metrics on what support he might or might not have, uh, the numbers are in the House, which is the broader chamber down there. The, oh, he has only 15% of the seats. He has 38 out of 257 in his party. In the Senate, which has only 72 seats, he's got eight. So the way to summarize this is uh, <laughs> that Malay's party, which is called, I think it's called Liberty Advances or Liberty Advancement. I don't, I don't know the translation, but it's got liberty in the name at least. He's not a conservative. They have basically 10 to 15 percent of the seats. Now, in, in this parliamentary system, you need more than that to get your agenda passed. Well, there is a there is a formidable center right group called Together for Change, and they were actually in power from 2015 to 2019. Mauricio uh, Macri, the yeah. Mauricio, Mauricio Macri and his group did support Malay. So at least in the uh, bigger house, if you add um uh, that group to Malay, they get something like 50%. It's not true in the Senate. So at, at some point, he's going to have to bring in Peronists or however they're called. Uh, so that, that we could talk about that. But that just so people knew the numbers, I think it's very interesting, Stephen, because even though from our side of the philosophy and political spectrum, we would cheer on any kind of pro-liberty libertarian. It, it is true that libertarians have a long history of so distrusting the state that they don't participate in the state. They don't they don't feel it's proper, you know, to be part of the process. And then the difficulty and paradox is if you're elected, you have no bench. You know, you have no team uh, with credentials, with um, a history of governing and it's kind of paradoxical, isn't it? You win this election, but then you're kind of stuck with, well, who is going to help me? Yeah. Who actually agrees with me? It's a, it's a dilemma. Yes. So uh, tomorrow I'm giving a talk here in Buenos Aires, and uh, I'm going to be speaking to that issue in a slightly abstract and philosophical uh, form. But on the list of priorities, you know, after economy, bureaucracy reduction, yeah. uh, education, I know, mm. is pretty high up there. Mm. Uh, as much as we complain about how terrible our public education system is in the U.S. and Canada and some other places, it's amazingly good compared to the Argentinian mm. one. Ah. I don't know that that would be hard for Americans to uh, hard to believe. Yeah, the the, the amount of just yeah. outspoken propaganda and indoctrination in the textbooks. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it's shameful. Uh. So there are a lot of overlapping issues here about you know privatizing education as a possibility. School vouchers is very high on the list yeah. of uh, policy uh, reforms that they are considering. Uh, bringing some competition then into the schools, empowering parents, and getting them back in the loop, and and, uh, 
and so forth. But uh, if we combine this issue of, uh, of education, which is always to be looking to the future, to the medium term and the future term, the kids who are now just starting school, what are they going to learn in the next 10 or 15 years before they become the adults who are uh, you know, doing everything that adult Argentinians do, running the businesses, yeah. going into politics and, uh, and, and, and so forth. Um, if their minds are not changed from the same old, same old that Argentinians have been taught for generations, then Malay will be flash in the pan and he knows it. So in one sense, uh, the gridlock that you are talking about, and there are formidable forces that will be lined up to try to stop everything that he can do, plus his own uh, challenges of overcoming the inexperience and the small team to be able to get things done. In the shorter term, uh, perhaps his most important legacy could be whenever he leaves office, whether it's in four years or if he gets reelected and it's eight years, yeah. what can he do to change the educational culture of Argentina? Yeah. And here uh, I'm, I'm partly hopeful because in a way he is such a good communicator. You know, he, he lays out numbers and he says, yeah. this is the bad number, this is the good number. Right. So he's very honest with people and he has a way of talking to people uh, uh, in a way that not only gets them to listen, but makes a point in a very vivid fashion. Yeah. And so if you can do that effectively for the next four years, hmm. then at least people will be aware of a huge number of facts uh, that they were not aware of before. And they will have uh, better economic thinking, and they will be having the kinds of economic debates that will serve them well. And uh, if that can go hand in hand with some sort of education reform of the schools, privatization vouchers, and uh, and so forth, then that might be the most important legacy from Malay. I like that. And beyond just the facts of laying out the facts of this is how markets work, I think deeper, the more he in his arguments, the more he cites um, the great thinkers like Mises, Hayek, Rand, Buchanan, Nozick, as, as he's and Friedman, as he's as he's wont to do, he does do that. That alone, yes. that alone, Stephen, would elevate people. People would start saying, "Who is this Mises guy? Who is this exactly. Hayek guy? Who is this Hayek guy? Who is who is right. you know?" So I know his job is not to be you know head tutor. Uh, for the population, but the fact that he's very good about sprinkling his answers with citations of this kind, right? Uh, it, beyond just the fact, I think that alone might be very interesting. Now, I have a question for you, Stephen. You know the whole the whole Chicago boys in Chile story. Um, do you think yes. it's do you think it's possible, even legal? I, I don't know. You may know down locally. Is it possible for him to overcome? this dearth of Argentinian libertarians in his cabinet and elsewhere by inviting down, I don't want to say down or over or upward, whatever, libertarian economists, advisors, ex-cabinet officials from the rest of the world right. to, to right. descend upon, you know what I'm saying? From Cato, from Heritage, from Oh yeah, sure. From Britain, from Britain, from all, all these Atlas Foundation think tanks that have been established right. over the years, which I assume he's connected to, and you you speak before these groups. 
Is that possible that he could somehow is and is it allowed in Argentina that he could do that? Just bring in people from all over the mm -hmm. world because he doesn't find them locally. Well, I know that at least informally that that has happened in and will happen increasingly now. So you're saying you know, he mentions the you know, Mises and then you know 10,000 young people who said, I've never heard of this guy go out and look up Mises on Wikipedia or whatever, yeah. or the same thing with respect to, to Rand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there is a well-oiled mechanism internationally of uh, politicians bringing in various sorts of expertise from other countries when they think it's uh, desirable to do so. And I do know that uh, some of the think tanks and activist organizations already here in Buenos Aires, there is Ayn Rand Center Latin America, you know, they are here. They started in Buenos Aires. There okay. is yeah. uh, liberty and progress, and they are you know, okay. you know, Misian and Hayekian, yeah. and uh, and so on. So they are you know, uh, well positioned to capitalize, and they are connected to people who are connected to people. And okay. so, yeah. Uh, yeah, all of that is going to happen uh, anyway. So whenever Malay mentions Mises, then they'll be ready to say, and here. Or the you know the on their YouTube channels or whatever their venues are. Here's what you need to know about Mises, and the same thing for the Rand groups. Yeah, and of course those groups would would have a high self interest in seeing this experiment work, and and you know and and, and last more than four years. I mean, it isn't just four years. I mean, there have been cases yeah. where yes. there have been cases where radicals like this don't even last out their term because the knives are out you know the knives are out for this guy so but yes. it would be in this it would be in the self-interest of these other groups right Stephen, to say we have a success we have a success story in argentina look at this yes. yeah so they are they're well aware of that and you know, they explicitly see themselves we are in the cultural education business and this is our moment yeah so, great yeah. wow well, I, uh, I do want to at least invite people to ask questions this is a great conversation uh, let me ask quickly on the flip side, what about the argument that uh, Malay is now a, a representative for the liberty movement, whether we like it or not, and if he fails, it's now going to set back the liberty movement for a generation? Uh, well, I have, a, I have a thought on that, Stephen. Yeah, go ahead. Leave, no, I want to leave it. You, oh, okay, I want to hear your views as well. Uh, Scott, I think the best way to handle this would be to put him in a broader context, as even the critics are doing, in trying to compare and contrast him to others that, you know, our enemies would call right-wing extremists or whatever they call them. So I think it's I think it's very interesting to start comparing and contrasting. Well, is this a South American movement? Is this a global movement? How does he relate to Bolsonaro in Brazil? How does he relate to Trump? in america what are the arguments how do they differ how does he relate to victor orban in hungary how does he relate to uh is it molinari and i forget her name in italy but she's a right-leaning new prime minister in italy they all have varying uh, emphasis right if if we wrapped it up in a package that said there seems to be some kind of right movement right wing i hate to call it that movement globally and if we start distinguishing the healthy ones, you know, from the less healthy ones, we're able to distinguish our case more. And so, so it's not just hinging on Malay. It's, wow, Malay is part of a broader pattern 
and maybe the socialists and fascists are on their heels and let's contrast and compare and see what the best arguments are and the best administrations uh, uh, are that that would be my reaction we should broaden the discussion yeah i think that's uh that's a, a useful thing um to do and yeah there would be a, a lot of work to be done um you know in all of those comparisons and contrasts um but come back to scott's question more specifically i i don't see that if Malay fails, that uh, there's any net loss here. I only see an upside. Because hmm. um, hmm. then, you know, whatever amount of cultural education he gets done, whatever amount of political actual reform he gets done, all of that is uh, is net plus. And I think everybody who does politics is savvy enough to know that. You know, of course, he's going to lose in the next election or the next two elections because that's just how things always go. Uh, and that's just politics as usual. The thing I would worry more about is um, you know, he is a volatile personality. Yeah. And in some, some ways, you know, it's not just theater. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it is a part of who he is. And I think uh, there is some indication that he's going to become more dignified and more statesmanlike. But uh, in the past 10 years lead up to all of this, he yeah. can be and has been quite crude. Yeah. Uh, and in, in my estimation, quite badly crude yeah. in, uh, in the, the language that he uses, yeah. his willingness to engage in ad hominem attacks yeah. On, yeah. On, on people and, yeah. and so yeah. forth. So, there, uh, there may be that there are character flaws that when the pressure of office is on him, mm. become too much for him. Mm. And if he has some sort of a character meltdown, mm. then of course that will set up for at least some very bad public relations for libertarianism if he is the poster child for libertarianism around the world. Yeah, they are. Uh, uh, people like you know crazy uh, mm -hmm, <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or, or crude people of bad character. So mm -hmm. that uh, to me again is just an open question. Great answer. It's a really good, yeah, great answer, Stephen. Uh, let's go to Fountainhead Forum. Thanks for joining us. Hey Scott, uh, thanks for letting me know about this. You know, I've I've had my twenty-seven people on my podcast talking about Melee, and and you know he he seems like a you know, maybe like a version of Johnny Cash. Uh, you know, maybe we just need more lead singers in our movement, but also uh, <laughs> some other things I wanted to bring up. Uh, you know, they lowered the vote voting age to 16. He went out and got the youth vote. Uh, also, as another one of my guests pointed out, uh, a lot of Venezuelan immigrants were actually helping me lay uh, uh, because they said, we don't want another Venezuela. Uh, you know, and, and so there's, I think, I think, you know, I, I've said maybe I go over the top with this, but I've said this could be the most important election in the history of the world. Uh, you know, it's it it really could be that big. And, you know, if nothing else, we we need to learn. We need to learn something from this is how to market ourselves. Millet made himself cool. And our movement has a lot of nerds. And and, you know, how do we get more rocks out? How do we get more rock singers how do we get more personalities like that? I think is the question we need to ask. And I'd love to hear, and since Steven is there, I'd love to hear from you. And of course, 
you know, so thanks. Yeah, it's been a great talk. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, uh, uh, I think political theater is important. Uh, so he's clearly a master of it, or at least of a, of a certain style of it. So uh, to that extent, I'm, I'm uh, fine with anybody who can hold an audience's attention uh, when he's talking about economic matters and policy matters and make the points that need to be made clearly. So the you know the average person in the streets and uh, all over Argentina can understand it. That's uh, that's very good. So yeah, we do need more rock stars, uh, people to make libertarianism sexy. Yeah, I, the other thing I noticed, Stephen, is apropos, say, comparing back to comparing and contrasting. Unlike Trump, who is prone to ad hominem and and, and is quite can be quite undisciplined. Uh, on the stage or in open forum and not reading a speech. I don't see Malay quite that way. So I think the, the, I think the theatrics are chosen or well chosen. It's not like he's, uh, you know, losing his mind in the middle of a debate. He's very pugnacious, but intellectually pugnacious. And, and I, I, I see a kind of moral certitude where you could see it on his face when he's like facing a socialist or, or even a pope, and 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 he, it, it's like he really believes these people are bad for me. These people are bad for human well-being. These people are, are you know, they know what socialism is, and they're advocating anyway. And he gets angry, and but but he gets angry in a way that you know you and I might get angry. Like, what is wrong with these people? I'm sick of these people. And but but there's some substance to it, and there's some depth to it. I like, and the moral certitude is so crucial because we know. That the brazenness of those on the left and those who are anti-reason and anti-capitalism are almost brazen about it. And we seem to lack that on the right, this kind of moral certitude that uniquely Ayn Rand gave because she gave this moral case for capitalism. And yeah, so, think... you, you know, whereas the conservatives would be very, you know, kind of apologetic about, yeah, I guess we should be, I guess we should be for capitalism, but it is kind of selfish and doesn't really emphasize the family. And we know that hasn't worked. And he's and he's unique in that regard. I, I I wonder what you think of that take. Yeah, no, I like that. I just wanted to add to the the moral certitude, the uh, the fact certitude. So you know, mm -hmm. aside from yeah. uh, who who controls the moral high ground, which is so important in culture and politics. Uh, as we know, we live in a rather skeptical, relativistic, yeah. uh, postmodern age, and so to have someone who comes along and says this is a fact yeah. it's, it's real and also to argentinians we cannot stick our heads like ostriches in the sand i don't know if ostriches actually do this right but we cannot <laughs> blind ourselves to reality anymore mm -hmm. we have to face the facts it is going to be painful this is what we are going to do we have mm -hmm. to put numbers and charts and and make certain commitments so the moral certitude combined with the fact certitude i think are both very important yeah, and, um, and not and, and not to not to double back to the point about um, the the argument on corruption uh, uh, relevant here. He is very good at hammering home the necessity of equality before the law. In the Tucker interview specifically, he's asked about this ministry for women, and the answer is brilliant because he basically says women have rights just like men do. We don't need a separate ministry for women. How come there's not a ministry for men? We need to have equality before the law. 
And he actually says, this is very profound. He gets this. He says, he says, when we need to, when we uh, redistribute wealth or demand that everyone be equal in result, we necessarily have to treat them unequally in the law to get there. And that's the source of our corruption. I mean, that is amazing. That is an amazing insight. And so the whole concept yeah. of objectivity, the rule of law, treat people the same way. Um, he has a certitude. He has a certitude about that, really, that helps the argument. But apropos the questioner, I think the questioner was kind of saying when he said "we," I think he kind of meant "we" as libertarians. And in many ways, this is new stuff to libertarians, and especially those who call themselves anarcho-capitalists, because an anarcho really doesn't want any government. So they're they're stuck with the idea. Well, now you're running the government. What are you going to do? And, and we know libertarians focused on politics do want to say do want to see political change occur. So this is a key moment. I mean, he mentioned this is an important moment. I'm not sure it's the most important election of the last 50 years, but it's important to the libertarian movement in the sense that they really do have to show that they can govern, that they don't assume every state is necessarily statist. The Argentinian state right now is statist, but, but the job is to make it less so, to go in the right direction. <clears throat> And that isn't really a project that the libertarians have focused on. Their view has been laissez-faire or nothing, laissez-faire or bust. But you need to know how to go from point B back to point A, you know, to they actually execute the change. And that's the challenge here. That's what he's trying to do. Mm. Great point. Uh, well, uh, let's go to BJ with the time we have left. Hey, everybody. Steven's good to talk to you again. I feel like oh, we did you. this a couple of days ago. Hey, Mr. <laughs> Dichter, good to see you. I hear you. It's good to talk to you, too. I'm very happy to hear you on Spaces. Uh, this is uh, absolutely fascinating. Hopefully you'll you'll do more of it. Uh, just a couple of things. First, you know, you, the, uh, the difference in perspective on corruption in Latin America and North America. Well, a perfect example is when we had all our bank accounts frozen, in Canada because of the trucker protest, uh, everybody still, when I travel all over, doesn't matter if it's El Salvador or the United Kingdom, people are still shocked that that happened. Mm. Yet two months after, uh, when, the, when the Brazilian truckers had their bank accounts frozen in the exact same way, everybody, their attitude is like, yeah, of course, that's, that's, that's what the government would do. Why would we be surprised? And they just seem to be accepting mm. it. Um, but I wanted to ask you, in the, um, in the 10 years that you've been going there, uh, what, sort have, what sort of change or shift in thinking from students on campus have you seen? Have you seen a shift? And then the other two points, uh, very quickly, uh, Richard, I know a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm very much in the Bitcoin space, and I know a lot of uh, traditional finance guys who are in Bitcoin, gold guys, yeah. And when Millet was elected, they were crying tears of joy. Yeah. They were so excited. Yeah. And uh, the last point, uh, Stephen has a, a podcast called Open College. Yeah. It's on YouTube and on Spotify and everywhere else, as well as uh, the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies YouTube channel. Please give it a listen, and we're going to be releasing mm. season two in the new year. But anyways, mm. what are your thoughts, uh, Stephen? Uh, you asked specifically about the students. So I, I'm not sure. I've lost track of how many universities I've spoken to uh, around Latin America, and, but and I've not noticed any change. Um, 
I know that there is uh, a growing Students for Liberty organization, so that North American organization founded originally by Alexander McCobin, I believe, uh, is doing well in uh, Argentina, in Brazil, and a few other Latin American countries, but I've not seen the impact uh, with me personally when I've been uh, dealing with uh, with students. What I've noticed is uh, the, the students, um, uh, they are left uniformly. They seem to be getting a pretty solid left postmodern education. And uh, one of the things I, I notice that still shocks me each time is when I walk into many buildings where philosophy, economics, and so on are taught. There's portraits of Karl Marx, uh, portraits uh, sometimes even of Lenin. Uh, in Argentina, of course, there are portraits of, uh, of Che Guevara on the walls. Um, and you know the, the faculty, administration, students all accept them. That is symbolic of the uh, of the, uh, the intellectual atmosphere there. There was one university in Brazil that uh, had a plaque put up for uh, Friedrich Hayek, and I saw that uh, shortly after it had been uh, un unveiled, and that was <laughs> like huge news. But my understanding was that within uh, a month or so, it was entirely defaced and destroyed. Just to add to that, something that I noticed in all the years in, I was in Colombia, it's the public universities were like that, but the private universities, the one I went to, Yape, was the polar opposite. So that's where you found your libertarian. Yeah, that's, that's well said. I, I have less experience at uh, the private universities. The ones I've gone to have been focusing uh, on uh, entrepreneurship studies, business studies, and engineering. And you're right, the, uh, the attitude is very different. The culture is different in those ones. As for the, uh, it's true that uh, Malay is uh, a big fan of crypto, especially Bitcoin. So I understand the reaction there. To the extent it might be part of the solution to fixing hyperinflation, I don't know yet, but um, I think he would be the kind of guy who would make sure, and there is Bitcoin used down there, that he would make sure that that has wide berth and that that isn't restricted in any way. It's not something the IMF would support or even the Fed would support, but I can see why he, and, and another reason why he would get youth support. Youth, the youth in America, as well as down there, are much more likely to be pro-Bitcoin, say, than pro the gold standard. The gold standard to the youth today sounds old-fashioned. Sounds like old fogey stuff. And um, so Malay doesn't mention, the, he has mentioned the gold standard, but he mentions crypto much more. Stephen, I just wanted to put in a plug for Antonella Marty, who works for the Atlas Society. And I don't know how often you meet up with her down there, but she is at the Atlas Society. If you want to look her up, the director of Society at Atlas and a senior fellow at the Atlas Society. But down there, she's also um, at the Latin American Policy Fellow. She's a fellow mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. Choice Center. I'm not sure where the main uh, work she does is, but she's around Latin America a lot, very, very well followed, right? Yes, yes. Um, I wanted to come back to, if there's time, Scott, to this uh, question about the, whether this is the most important election or not. Um, that got me thinking. I think this is probably the most important election for libertarianism around the world because, like, you know, everybody is talking about Malay all around the world. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, it's also striking that you know, Argentina now, in one way, is like a, perhaps one of the most happening places in the world. The Pope is Argentinian. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, soccer World <laughs> Cup champions were Argentina this past yeah. year, and now Malay. So uh, there's a huge yeah. amount of uh, excitement and attention focused on what is going on here. Yeah. And Argentina, in terms of natural resources and uh, uh, the human resources, has so much potential. It'd be wonderful if uh, the necessary reforms can be put in place for the foundation of a great recovery. You uh, spoke to the important, you know, that naming names was a factor for him. Why, why do you think that was important? Just authenticity, being willing to call things out? Uh, are you talking about the names of the intellectuals or names of the people who are uh, corrupt and who people are the People that were corrupt. Ah. Uh, well, I think this does speak to his theme of, uh, of, of personal responsibility. And indirectly, he is saying, you know, I expect to be held responsible for what I say. And I know I'm going to be under the magnifying glass. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm going to try to live up to my my standards, and I hope he I hope that he can can do so. But uh, to get past this issue of oh well, just some politicians did something or other, that's just the way it is. To uh, to make it personalized and and to say that politicians should be held to the same standards that everybody else is held to. Now, Richard made you know mention of the point about equality before the law. And uh, Malay does come back to that one uh, frequently because it certainly is part of the political culture here that uh, uh, you know politicians are not held to the same standards that ordinary people are are held to. Yeah. Uh, and, and another part of that, of course, is that there is a large amount of welfare state dependency down here, and that all gets combined with a, a strong level of paternalism. Uh, and people are you know, willing to go along with the big daddy government or big mommy government when Christina Kirshner is in power. Wow. Uh, uh, so being able to say, look, if you are an individual, you have your identity, putting names to it for good and bad and putting my name to it also. I think that's an important political statement. Yeah, they've gotten to the point where the poverty rate down there is something like 40 percent, which is almost three to four times what it is in the U.S. The U.S. I think is seven or eight percent. I think Malay also is in a unique position to be able to say something like the following. My opponents now on any issue, you know, I want to do this with the currency and fix hyperinflation. And they start complaining and whining. And so easy for him to say, wait a minute, you've been running things for a decade and we're in the gutter. Who are you to complain? Or uh, we need to privatize or we need to shrink the size of the government. If you think about it, anyone who uh, from the other parties criticizing him, they were the ones who brought Argentina to this position. I mean, he has argued that way. I mean, I'm not saying it's a new argument, but he needs to hold up that shield, so to speak, as he tries new things that the, the ankle biters and the objectors and the, the critics um, are going to be the ones who brought Argentina to this position to begin with. And uh, yeah. he needs to silence them a little bit for a while. Yeah, no, that's well said. How much can these international organizations like the IMF 
thwart his agenda, Richard. Well, it is a problem because, again, but he could say, listen, the prior administrations borrowed $45 billion from the IMF. And uh, it's true that the IMF is anti-capitalist. So they're going to not want him to fix the currency. They're against dollarization. They're against free trade. I mean, they're against almost everything he's doing. And yet he's beholden to them because he owes them money. I think in this case, since they've already defaulted on private debt, they've done that 20 years ago, and they've been doing it since, I think if he was brazen enough and bold enough, I would advise him to say to the IMF, don't press me, don't push me. I'm going to do this. I have a, I have a mandate to do this. And if you keep pushing me, I just won't pay you. I just will default. And, and do it uh, unapologetically, not because I don't think countries should pay their debts, but we're not going to pay our debts to a group that's telling us to keep with the same old program, the same old program that's bankrupting Argentina and threw them into the hands of the IMF to begin with. Those kind of arguments I'm sure he can make, but he's going to get a lot of pressure from the international community to kowtow to the IMF. Yeah, that's very interesting, Richard. They don't have a track record of free market stuff, uh, Stephen, but um, they, they, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned paternalism. The, the IMF is very odd because they almost want supplicants. They almost want um, needy borrowers that they can manipulate. I think Argentina owes more money to the IMF than any other country. It's at the top of the list. The IMF, of course, has run out of Washington. So anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's great that you're willing to uh, back him at least threatening default as a way of negotiating. Yeah, the other the other interesting dilemma for someone like Malay is uh, by this time, and this is happening in the U.S. more and more, we look at the first day a president has in the Oval Office, and what is he doing? He's standing there sitting at the desk with a pile of executive orders, just signing executive orders all day. So rule by, not by Congress or judiciary, but by executive decree, it's very common down there now. It's very common in Argentina. So, you know, you say to someone like Malay, just find things you can do by executive order. Of course, it sounds unliberal. It sounds unlibertarian. It's, it's autocratic, right? But, 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 and so it's a philosophic puzzle maybe. But, but if the orders he's signing are liberating the country, are reducing regulations and getting rid of departments and literally putting the currency on a sound standard. Um, you see, you see the problem, Stephen, it sounds like it's pragmatism. Yeah. And, and a libertarian politician might cringe at doing this, but mm. he has begun to do it. And I think it's because he knows that the consequentialism of it, if you, if you want to call it that the consequence of it will be a freer economy. Yeah. But you see the dilemma? Well, yeah, I think if, if it's uh, currently legal powers that the president yeah. has, then yeah. he's entitled to do so. Right. Yeah. Uh, as long as, as but along the way, you were saying it's in the direction of liberalization. It's the liberalization that is yeah. going to change the political culture such that easy right. executive orders become uh, less frequent in the future, hopefully. Right. Exactly. Of course, one of the executive orders can be uh, abolishing certain kinds of executive orders. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. 
Well, very well. Gentlemen, this has been a great discussion. Uh, maybe next year as he's, uh, you know, getting his policies underway, we can uh, revisit the subject. But, uh, you know, um, thank you all for joining us. It's not too late to make a year-end contribution to the Atlas Society, a nonprofit advancing these ideas, atlassociety.org slash donate. Thank you again to everyone who uh, listened, uh, spoke, and, and to uh, Richard and Stephen. Thanks a lot. It was a great discussion. Thank you, Scott. Okay, Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Richard. Great Thanks. points. Great to hear you again. Thanks for organizing it, Scott. Thanks.